So I know that many of you out there are well aware of the Texas killing fields. There have been books written about it. Now there have been TV shows. There have been podcast episodes about it, mine included. And there was even a film that came out in 2011. For decades, many of the murders of these young women and girls of the fields have remained unsolved. The mysteries of their murders cast a long, sad shadow over our I-45 corridor. But check this out. In 1970, beyond the fields, down the freeway and into the big city, in an area known as the Houston Heights, young men and boys were also coming up missing disappearing into the heavy weight of the Houston heat, and then poof, they were gone, and never to be seen or heard from again. That is, until three years later, when a serial killer, who they called the Candyman, was uncovered, and the bodies of missing boys known as the Lost Boys were unearthed. This is a chilling case of what happens when a city turns a blind eye to missing teens sex trafficking, and pedophilia specifically of teen boys that at the time was occurring right under their noses. So we're going to talk about what happened and who was behind the Houston mass murders. I'm Jen Schaefer, and this is Crude Axe, Murdered in Old Town. Episode 1. This story begins with an end. It was August 8, 1973, 8.24 a.m., a 17-year-old boy by the name of Elmer Wayne Henley Jr. placed a call to the Pasadena Police Department. The phone operator was a woman by the name of Velma Lines. She took the call, and this is what she heard. Y'all better come out here right now. I just killed a man. He then gave them the address, and it was 2020 Lamar Drive in Pasadena, Texas. Police officer Jerry Jamison booked it out there. He drove down the tree-lined streets into the working-class neighborhood, which at the time, and even still, is quiet and unassuming. Lamar Drive butts up against Vence Bayou, a river that runs northwest through Pasadena, and the city of Houston for a total of 19 channel miles to its mouth on the Houston Ship Channel. When Officer Jamison arrived at the house, he found three partially dressed, shaken-up teenagers, two boys and one girl, and they were sitting on the sidewalk. A 22 caliber pistol was on the ground near them. One of the kids, a skinny kid with shaggy brown hair, says to the police two words, and there and nodded his head towards the front door. Officer Jameson placed the three teens under arrest and put them in the back of his patrol car. He likewise secured the gun in an evidence bag and locked it in his trunk. From there, he drew his gun and cautiously entered the bungalow, and after a few steps in, a quick look around, and a peep into the hallway, he spotted the dead body of a man. He checked his vitals. There were none. The dead man's face was swollen and caked with blood. He was about six feet tall, appeared to be in his 30s. He was nude, and after examining the body, it was apparent 
He had been shot several times in the chest and in the back. Blood had pooled beneath him on the beige carpet. The white walls were smeared with blood that was already beginning to brown. He called for backup. Soon thereafter, detectives David Mulliken and William Lawrence arrived at the scene. Then after that, an ambulance and a few more officers. They then photographed and bagged the body and sent it out to the morgue. They confiscated the pistol and took the three teenagers to Pasadena headquarters for questioning. Detectives stayed behind to examine the home on 2020 Lamar Street. That was now a crime scene. Upon entering the home, detectives were slapped in the face with a pungent, lingering odor, not of death, but the scent of the remnants of a wild party that occurred only hours before. It was the combined smell of alcohol, weed, and paint fumes. Apparently, the kids had been huffing, which is, in this case, they were filling a bag with aerosol spray paint and then breathing in the fumes. The fumes caused an intense high, apparently, This was popular with kids back in the day. The detectives then examined the room and found it strange that the house lacked any of your typical decor that makes a house a home. It was almost empty with very little furniture. They described it as appearing as if someone was either in the process of moving in or moving out. Police then found their way to the bedroom and it was there that it gets wild. The rug inside the room was covered with sheets of heavy-gauge clear plastic. There was a single bed with covers that were all tangled and mixed in with the sheets. A bedspread was crumpled up on the floor, and it was next to a 7 by 3 piece of thick plywood that had holes drilled in the top of each corner with two sets of handcuffs. And then at the bottom of it, there were more holes. Through those holes were threaded nylon ropes. It appeared to be some sort of DIY detainment or torture board. Other items to be noted in the room was a hunting knife, a military-type gas mask, a portable radio that was rigged to a pair of dry cell batteries to give it increased volume and power, a wide roll of clear plastic, the same type that covered the floor. On the wall was a colorful poster with a Jesus-like image on it with the caption that said, love. On an adjacent shelf, there was a copy of the book, Human Sexuality. There were men's clothing all about, all over the floor. There's a Polaroid picture of a male teenager. And there was a man's wallet that contained a driver's license. And that driver's license was issued to a man named Dean Coral. The wallet had a couple hundred dollar bills in it and a small index card with a list of names and numbers. In the bedroom closet, they found a toolbox. And inside the toolbox, they found a 22 caliber bullet, a handcuff key, two joints, two small glass rods, a torn driver's license of a young man from Baton Rouge, and two dildos. One of them was even double-sided, and they were very big. Also in the closet, they found a box full of keys and a device that looked like a cattle prod. 
Police then made their way to the backyard, where they found a small shed. They made their way inside the shed and found a wooden box, 34 inches high, 24 inches wide, and 30 inches deep. It had air holes drilled into the sides and a hinged door in the front that closed with a clasp. Inside the box, they also found a few strands of human hair. Detectives took all their photos, collected all the evidence, and headed back to the station. Detective Mulligan stayed behind to do one more walkthrough, and while he was there, the phone rang. He answered the call, and on the other line was a woman's voice asking for a man named Dean. She stated she was Mary Quarrel, Dean's stepmother. Then and there, the officer had the unfortunate task of having to inform her that her stepson was dead, but also that there was more information that he couldn't release to her. Meanwhile, Officer Jameson was back at the station with the three teens he found in the house. Their names were Timothy Curley, Rhonda Williams, and Elmer Wayne Henley Jr. It was Jr. who stated he pulled the trigger and killed Dean Coral. The kid also informed him that Dean Coral kept talking to him about some warehouse where some bodies were buried. Police needed to know more, so they read him his rights, and then they asked him a series of questions. They got down to the basics first. His age, 17. His schooling, he was a dropout. He stated he had dropped out to earn money for his family. His occupation, he said he was in between jobs. His address, he lived with his mother and two brothers at 325 West 27th Street in the Heights. Then they got down to the nitty-gritty. How long did you know the victim, Dean Coral? He said he met him about three years ago through a friend named David Brooks. Well, what would you do together? Wayne said that they would go around riding in his car and drinking beer and stuff like that. He also mentioned that Dean was a homosexual and he offered him money for sex, to which he declined. Okay, anything else? Please questioned. A couple months ago, they started talking about Dean quitting his job and all of them leaving in September to go out traveling. Just you and him, they asked? No, Rhonda was going to go with them. So what about Tim Curley, the other guy? How long did he know Dean? They met several months ago, and Dean wanted to have sex with him. Did Tim know about that? They asked him. I don't know, he said back. They asked him to reconstruct what happened and what led to the scene of that last morning that Dean Coral would ever see alive. And this is what he told them. He said Dean picked him up sometime after he got off work at HLMP. He met him at the corner of 15th Street and Shepherd Drive. They drove around for a little while and drank beers, and Dean told him that he wanted to get Tim to come over to his house so he could have sex with him. So they go by Tim's apartment, and Henley stays there with Tim, and Dean goes home. Wayne stays there with Tim until around midnight. This is when they loaded up in Tim's car and went to pick up his friend Rhonda to head out to Dean's house. Rhonda had been dealing with an abusive father and she just needed to get out of the house and away from him for her own safety. So that's how she ended up with the boys. 
Wayne explained the three of them arrived at Dean's house in Pasadena around 3 a.m. They entered the house quietly. Wayne had a key. They all sat around and drank alcohol and smoked pot and bagged for a couple hours until it hit them and one by one, they all passed out. Wayne said when he came to, his ankles were bound together and Dean was snapping handcuffs on his wrist. He noticed that Tim and Rhonda were also tied up with nylon ropes and straps. He asked his, quote, friend what he was doing to him and then Dean turned up the music really high on the portable radio and he moved in close and told them that he was going to kill them all. He said that Wayne blew it because he had brought Rhonda with them and Dean Coral had a no girls allowed type policy at his house. Dean also said to him though, that he wanted to have a little fun first as he jammed his 22 caliber pistol into his ribs. Wayne said he then begged for his life, telling Dean he would do anything that he asked of him to remember that they were friends. He even told him that he would help him torture the two others and if he just let him go, everything would be cool, man. Dean thought about it for a tick and then finally unshackled him. Wayne said he then ordered him to take the girl, cut off all her clothes and rape her and he was going to do the same thing to the boy. He cuffed and strapped Timothy Curley to a wooden torture board face down, naked and spread eagle, Coral then undressed and climbed on top of him. Rhonda asked him, is this real? And Wayne said, yes. And then she asked him, what are you going to do about it? And then Wayne thought for a second. And he said, this is when he grabbed the pistol and he pointed it at Dean and he yelled for him to stop. Dean turned and looked back at him, his face stern as steel, his eyes dead yet maniacal. Wayne said he then launched to his feet and lunged towards him, yelling, kill me, kill me, Wayne, you're gonna kill me? You won't do it, you won't do it. And that's when Elmer Wayne Henley Jr. said he pulled the trigger. And he pulled it again, and again, and again. He said he kept pulling until the chamber was empty and his friend fell to the floor. He told police he then returned to the bedroom and released the two others who were still dizzy from the drugs. He helped them out to the front porch and then called the police to come out. The two other teens corroborated Wayne's story. They were both still pretty out of it and in shock. Police did a background search on Wayne and came to discover that the boy was already on probation for carrying a pistol. And they asked him, why didn't you just flee the scene? You knew that you were going to get in trouble, but Wayne said he just decided that it would be better if he stayed there and waited and that there was more to the story. Wayne then unfolded a tale that was hard for them to believe. He told them that Dean Coral liked little boys and that he had actually told them that he killed some boys and buried them out in a warehouse. He told them he had sex with the boys and that he couldn't afford for anyone to know that he was queer and what he had done, so he killed them. Something to note is that police had their talk with Tim Curley, and he made an interesting statement about his friend Elmer Wayne Henley Jr. 
He said to them that Wayne asked him if he knew of any good-looking white boys that could go missing without anyone noticing. And he was even quoted as saying, Man, if you wasn't my friend, I could have gotten $1,500 for you. Police didn't think much of the statement at the time and shrugged it off. And even at that moment, as they were listening to Henley and his talk about dead boys in a warehouse, no one was taking him seriously. Not really. But they asked him for names, and the ones that they told him were the following. He said David Hillegeist, Charles Cobble, and Marty Jones. The names immediately struck a chord, especially Cobble. His dad, Vern, had been at the station several times, encouraging them to look for his son. They wrote him off as just a father of a son who was a runaway. Cobble had gone missing with a kid by the last name of Jones, whose cousin was a detective. They said the two boys had been in the dope business, so they figured they were just hiding out somewhere. But now the name Hillegeist, they checked his name with the missing persons department and found a substantial file on him. David Hillegeist was a 13-year-old boy who had disappeared in May 1971, and the parents have pressed for a search every day for the past two years since his disappearance. So that was when HPD decided they would help Pasadena PD with anything they needed, and detectives Carl Seibeniker, I think I said that right, Irvin McComas and Larry Earls joined the investigation. That day, around 4 p.m., they all loaded up in their cars, Henley included, and they went out to the place he told them the boys were buried, which was about nine miles southwest of downtown Houston. They drove through a region of small industries and businesses and a small neighborhood. They turned onto a road named Silverbell and then onto Player Street to a business by the name of Southwest Boat Storage. It was then six o'clock in the evening. Elmer Wayne Henley Jr. then walked detectives towards a shed marked number 11. The storage facility owner didn't have a copy of the key to get inside, so detectives had to snip the lock. After the lock popped off and they opened the door to the shed, it immediately hit them. A scene of death kicks at the senses, sight, sound, smell, and even more so the sixth sense, the one we all have that prickles our skin with a chill of uncertainty and fear, that sensation that tells you something's not right, time to fight, or time to flight. Moreover, what this said to police was that it seemed this boy Wayne was telling the truth. The boat shed was 15 feet high by 12 feet wide by 34 feet deep, big enough for small yachts. But inside this certain shed, there was no boat. There was instead a stripped-down 1971 Chevy Camaro, sacks of dehydrated lime, two empty 20-gallon garbage containers made of plastic, cans of acrylic spray paint, a rolled-up dirty carpet, various tools, wires, and batteries, a red homemade kid's bike with a banana seat, and a plastic bag containing male clothing and shoes of all sorts, ranging in sizes from small to medium. More detectives arrived, and with them were a couple of trustees. They were the guys that they made do all the digging. 
They studied the ground and found a spot that looked different, where it buckled up a little with a series of cracks, and that's where they started. After about 10, 15 minutes of digging, they uncovered a layer of lime, and then past the layer of lime, this ditch hit. The unique and pungent scent of death. With a few more shovel scoops, they unearthed a human skull, followed by the body that it belonged to. And then they found another, and then another. Bones of boys, it was hard to tell straight away how many. Media caught wind of what was going on and began to show up with reporters and cameras. Jack Cato from KPRC Channel 2 News, Ann James with the Houston Post, and Larry Cooper with the Houston Chronicle. All the while, Elmer Wayne Henley Jr. was there at the scene, watching and listening to the events unfolding. He was beginning to crack. He then asked them if he could call his mama and police allowed him to from a cellular phone. The news that was there recorded the conversation and this is what he said. Hello? Mama. Yeah, it's Wayne. Yeah, this is Mama, baby. Mama? Yeah. I killed Dean. Wayne? Dean? Yeah, yes. Wayne then sat on the ground, facing away from the shed with his head buried in his hands. He said out loud in a sob, I knew Marty. He's in there. And David, I grew up with him. He lived next door and I went to school with Charles. Police asked the owner of the boat shed how long Dean Coral had rented it out. And she told them since November 17, 1970. They asked about any suspicious activity. She had to think. And she remembered one day, nine cars pulled in front of the stall, and Coral explained to her that he was selling a few pieces of furniture. She said one time Coral visited the shed two or three more times a week, you know, then he would drop things off, sometimes to work inside. Oh, she said two months ago, he hauled in something big, black, and heavy, but she just didn't think anything of it. And there was another time Coral was sitting alone in his van outside the stall for a couple hours until everyone left. He then got out and began unloading something. She also stated for the past several months that he had been pestering her for more space when it opened up. Back in Shed 11, the excavation crew kept digging until midnight when they called it quits And at that point, they had unearthed a total of eight bodies. Wayne told them that there are far more, and he estimated them to be around 19 bodies. So the next day, they returned to the shed, and they did. They dug up nine more bodies, which brought the total body count to 17. And that day also brought in another set of statements and confessions by another young man by the name of David Owen Brooks. 
This kid, Brooks, comes in, and he offered up more pieces to add to this horrific puzzle. He stated that he had lived with Dean Coral on and off for about three years. And at first, he initially said that he didn't see anything like any murders, any evidence of any crimes. He stated that Dean was just sort of a guy that kept to himself and minded his own business, that he didn't understand all this murder talk and where it was coming from. So they took Henley back to the police department where David Brooks was still being questioned. And they arranged for the two of them to run into each other there. And David seemed surprised. Wayne said to him that he told the police everything about his part in it and he ought to do the same. He stated that he felt good, like after getting it off his chest. David Brooks replied back to Henley saying he didn't know what he was talking about and he had nothing left to say to the police. So Wayne said to him, Well, David, then I'm going to change my story and say you were the one who'd done it all. Brooks ignored his comment, and Wayne laughed it off, saying he was only kidding. But still, it worked. Hours later, David Brooks finally opened up about Dean Coral. He said when he was a kid in the neighborhood, Dean Coral would ride around on his motorcycle and give candy to the kids. And when he was around 12 to 13 years old, the two of them became, quote, special friends. They developed a sexual relationship, and he said that Dean paid him money to allow him to commit oral sex on him. He eventually told police a terrible tale about one time he came to the apartment that he shared with Dean that was near the county orphanage. And he came home and he had Dean with two little boys tied to a board and they were naked and he was committing sexual acts with them. He said the boys were petrified. He said later that Dean told him that he killed those two boys, and in order to keep his mouth shut about him, he promised to buy him a Corvette. For the record, Brooks later had a Corvette. Brooks said he was also the one who introduced Dean to Elmer Wayne Henley Jr. He said the two of them became close, and they even ganged up on him. And one day, he walked into the apartment where they all hung out, and Elmer Wayne Henley Jr. slugged him, and then Dean strapped him onto the bed and then committed repeated acts of sodomy on him. They were going to kill him. But they didn't. Meanwhile, Elmer Wayne Henley Jr. was spilling it all to the police, everything that had been happening for the past few years that he and a boy named David Brooks rounded up and led teen boys to Dean Coral to all his many abodes for him to sexually assault and sometimes kill them depending on his frame of mind. He again said that there were 19 bodies in the shed and that there were several more out on High Island and also at Dean Coral's family summer cottage off Lake Sam Rayburn. Both David Brooks and Wayne Henley were arrested and locked up, and the next day they were pulled out to disclose where the bodies were on High Island and then later on at Lake Sam Rayburn. Out on High Island, they found more bodies, just where Brooks and Henley said they were. They dug them up with a crowd of people observing the excavation. Out on Lake Sam Rayburn, near the Coral Lake House, they found even more bodies. After all is said and done, the total body count rose to 27 dead boys and young men. Question is, how could something like this happen to so many boys? 
David Brooks said to police that Dean Coral liked oral sex and that he would pay boys to come over and let him do that to them. They were some of the boys that were involved with him for a long time, and they kept coming back, and he kept paying them. Every once in a while, he would take a kid by force, and then he would rape them, and he would wind up killing those boys. Brooks said that he used a plywood board, and he himself would hold the boys down in position while Coral abused them and murder them. He said once they were on the board, they were good as dead. Brooks also included that Elmer Wayne Henley Jr. really enjoyed inflicting pain and enjoyed the killings and that most but not all of the killings occurred when he joined the two of them with this lascivious and murderous operation. He also said that most of the boys weren't good boys. They were in trouble all the time and they were into drugs statements that are maddening mantras of let's blame the victim. They had it coming. The thing is, you know that doesn't jive with me. The thing is, we know it's just not the case. A victim should never be blamed for the atrocities that happen to them, no matter who they are or where they came from. No one brings this on themselves. No one deserves to be raped or murdered. And many of these victims were only kids. 13, 14 years old. I don't care what kind of trouble they had been in. None of them had it coming. All of them deserved better. On this six-episode series, there's a lot of information to cover. So yeah, there's, it looks like there's going to be that many. We're going to delve into the lives of the Houston mass murderers, Dean Coral and his accomplices, Elmer Wayne Henley Jr. and David Brooks. We're going to talk about their victims and what happened and where it happened and when the Candyman and his crew committed these crude acts. And then finally, some surprise material that I discovered while researching this piece. It's about Dean Coral's alleged ties to a sex trafficking ring that was prominent in Dallas and Houston and other major cities, a sex trafficking ring that was even tied to the notorious killer clown John Wayne Gacy. I'm Jen Schaefer, and this is Crudax Murder in an Old Town. All original music is by the ever-so-fabulous Houston's own two-star symphony. Russell Dunlap produces this thing, and Amy Dunlap manages this thing. And we record all of our episodes at Cabin 76 Podcast Studio in Houston, Texas. On episode two in this series, I'm going to talk about the man, Dean Coral, the candy man who he was and where he came from, as well as his accomplices, Elmer Wayne Henley Jr. and David Brooks, and how he met them. We're going to delve into the trio who committed the killings known as the Houston Mass Murders so we can better understand what happened. Stay tuned for next time, and we'll see you then.